Good morning. Thank you for that lovely meditation music. And thank you also to Amanda, who showed complete and utter faith that I would be able to do this, and at no point offered me an out. (laughs) Because, you see, giving the platform seemed like a really great idea back in July. (laughs) The idea to give the platform came to me during my work in the Music Leader Certification Program. No one was putting me up to it. It's not part of my coursework. I just knew I had a subject I wanted to talk with you about. So here we are, me standing here, talking, instead of over there, with my back to you, waving my arms. Yeah. So, why am I giving this talk? Before I answer that question, I'd like to tell you a little more about how I came to be at West in the first place, since many of you may not be familiar with my journey here. Back in 2010, wait, let's go back further. Back in 1975, (laughs) I went to preschool in upstate New York at the Emma Willard Children's School. I loved it. I remember the big, tall French doors with the sun streaming in. I remember dressing up and playing. It was a wonderful place for a four-year-old. A few years after that, Amanda went to the same preschool. Cut forward to 1978. While on summer vacation, I learned I'd be changing schools. I was devastated. I had lots of friends at the Doan Stewart School, where I was at that point. I loved the playground. I had a boyfriend. Life was great. Why did I need to switch? I never really liked the Albany Academy for Girls, but it was okay, and I stayed through seventh grade. A few years after that, Amanda went to the Albany Academy for Girls, too. (laughs) This serendipitous overlap between Amanda and me, which actually has nothing to do with how I ended up at Wes, does, however, make me smile. For various reasons, I skipped eighth grade and transferred to the Emma Willard School to begin high school. Suddenly, I had friends, was academically challenged, tried new things, like running the mile for the track team. Not my finest achievement as well as switching from ballet to modern dance, giving up studying the piano, continuing to sing a lot, and generally having a great time. A few years after that, Amanda went to Emma Willard. (laughs) She and I even studied with the same piano teacher. Again, separated by a few years. Okay, the story is going to break down for a minute now. I transferred after 10th grade to St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, and went there for three years. Amanda did not go to St. Paul's a few years later. (laughs) Meanwhile, at St. Paul's, I again had few friends and felt like a fish out of water in this sports-obsessed school. I did discover that I wanted to be a professional singer, got to be a very big fish in a small musical pond, buried my feminism in the old boy atmosphere of a New England boarding school, and mostly just tried to make it through. And then it was done. And I went to Yale for a year. It was one of the most amazing and painful years of my life. I loved the incredible intelligence of everyone around me, plus the old buildings and history of it surrounding me at every turn. And I developed TMJ, 
sank into a depression born of chronic pain, coupled with years of suppressing and rationalizing my emotions, and left. Mind you, I had planned to return after my year off. I had submitted for two semesters leave, during which I worked to save up and then go to the Baja in Mexico with the National Outdoor Leadership School. I even called from Mexico. Remember when calling long distance was difficult and super expensive? And this was a collect call. Just to talk to a friend at Yale and arrange for him to proxy for me in the housing lottery. I was prepared. But then sometimes things don't go as we planned. In June of that year off, I visited my best friend from high school while she was with her family in Greece. Both her parents were archaeologists. We went traveling around the countryside and ended up at Epidaurus, one of the most perfect outdoor amphitheater acoustics in the world. I walked to the center, waited in line while folks dropped their coins or called out a phrase and listened for the echo, and then took my turn, singing a jazz song I knew. And as I sang, I knew I wasn't going back to Yale. I was hearing my voice, shaking though it was, seeing the ancient cypress on the hillside above the stone bleachers, and thinking, this is what I'm called to do. Called by my spirit, called by everything around me, called by my history. I knew that music school was where I needed to be. What I'd planned, in fact, before the fat envelope had come from Yale two years previous. Once back in Athens, I made another one of those very expensive phone calls, told my parents to hold off sending any money to Yale, and headed home. So to cut a long story down a bit, I took one more semester off, applied to music schools, and ultimately transferred to Boston University's School for the Arts. A few years later, Amanda went to Yale. She did not transfer to BU. Now, while I could continue to narrate the steps in my path, the next one that might interest folks is that after I got married to my husband, Doug, we moved down here so that he could go to graduate school at the University of Maryland. This was August of 2001, with 9-11 and the tornado that cut through the College Park campus happening in quick succession, and anthrax and irradiated mail following soon after. It was a stressful time. I was singing at Church of the Epiphany at Metro Center, but finding I could no longer focus through sermons that held no meaning for me and liturgy that meant even less. With some guidance from a colleague, I stumbled into a job singing at All Souls Unitarian down the street. My first Sunday there, I knew this was a place I could sing with my whole self present, not just my voice. And my husband and I quickly joined. Not long after that, I met Amanda. <laughs> we were finally in the same place at the same time. But we still haven't gotten me to Wes, nor to discussing duty and what duty means to people in their lives. But stay with me. Fast forward to the fall of 2010. My second child, Marjorie Alice, is at that point four months old. And I've gone back to teaching voice at the Holton Arms School as well as to my job at St. Thomas DuPont Circle. Singing for Episcopalians no longer bothered me, since I had a spiritual home at All Souls. But my being away at all definitely bothered my daughter a lot. Although from the very beginning she was happy to be on her own in the house, she didn't want me away from the house ever. 
I was starting to resent my work, especially the voice teaching, which I didn't feel very confident doing and didn't much enjoy as a result. After some moments of internal crisis and a lot of thinking and feeling my way through the issues, I decided to take a sabbatical from singing. It took about six months, but by June of 2011, I'd completed my teaching, stopped accepting new gigs, and resigned my church job. Then suddenly, I'm not singing anymore. I'm not teaching. I'm being a full-time mom. I'm feeling really good. And a notice about the job here at West comes through my email. While I could talk a whole lot about getting in my own way, about needing to be persuaded by my friend Sonia to apply, feeling unsure about my journey, trying to back out of something clearly so right for me, that's another platform. The short version is, I applied for the job. Mary Herman, then leader for Congregational Life, who ran the hiring team during Amanda's maternity leave, interviewed me and offered me the job. I took the job. So now to turn to duty. As many of you know, I am part of a national organization called the Unitarian Universalist Musicians Network, UUMN, one of the support organizations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, or UUA, of which WES is a member congregation, along with our membership in the American Ethical Union, or AEU. One of the programs the UUA and UUMN jointly administer is the Music Leader Certification Program, or MLCP. That's the end of alphabet soup, I promise. About a year ago, for those of you keeping track of the story, that's two and a half years after I started working for Wes, I knew that it was time for me to learn more, to stop merely making it up as I went along and get some solid training. After all, although I have two degrees in music, they are both in vocal performance, not in conducting, let alone in choral conducting. I thought it was my duty to improve my skills, to raise the bar for myself, for the chorus, for all of you. Thus, I applied to join the MLCP. The certification takes three years and involves nine courses plus annual goals, culminating in a service project, drawing together what I've learned and connecting me and Wes to the wider community. All that began last summer with one glorious week in San Diego for the annual UUMN conference and MLCP courses. Lest you think it's in San Diego every year, this is an exception. It hadn't been in San Diego in at least eight years this summer. It's in Boston. But let me tell you, 200-plus chorus directors all together, that's some crazy stuff. From all the reading of music to the brainstorming about projects, the sights and sounds of Southern California, Pride Parade, because they do it in July in San Diego, Restaurants, it was amazing. I especially valued being able to represent humanism in general and ethical culture in particular and felt good about my ability to talk about Wes and how special we are. One of the three courses I took while there was Care and Ethics, in which the major forms of ethical theory were introduced. I figured I needed to pay attention to this one given I work for an ethical society. The ethical theory that grabbed me much to my surprise, was deontology, or duty-based ethics. Immanuel Kant was the first proponent of deontological ethics, which he formulated in contrast to what he saw around him, which was too hypothetical for him, too much based on experience rather than containing essential truths that were inviolate. 
Deontology says that one must do what is right out of duty and judges the morality of an action based on motives, not outcomes. Kant's three significant formulations, what he called the categorical imperative, are act only according to that maxim by which you can also will that it would become a universal law. Act in such a way that you always treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never simply as a means, but always at the same time as an end. And third, every rational being must so act as if he were, through his maxim, always a legislating member in a universal kingdom of ends. What does all that mean? If I believe that something is good, true, or right to do, then I must feel that it is okay for anyone to do the same. It must be universalizable. Two, I need always to treat people as ends in themselves, not as means to ends. Three, I need to behave as though I am an essential actor in the interconnected web, as is each and every person. Okay, heady stuff, this ethical business. Seriously, though, I really got stuck on deontology, Aside from the fact that it is a super satisfying word to say. <laughs> Try it. Deontology. Deontology. <laughs> Pull that out at your next party. <laughs> anyway, since the workshop on care and ethics in July, I've been thinking about duty-based ethics. I realized that the more I thought about it, the more I noticed how much I followed a duty-based model in many areas of my life. I began noticing how many things I do out of duty. Make my bed. Keep up my activity in our babysitting co-op. Cook meals from scratch, no matter how tired. Try to keep up with current events. The list goes on. So the first thing I got to thinking about, related to Wes, is why we sing in choruses. And what keeps us doing it? Do we do it because it's fun? Sure. Do we sing with others because we love singing in harmony? Learning difficult music, sharing the words and the melodies with others? Yes, all of those things. So then I wondered whether a chorister has a duty to attend rehearsal, a duty to prepare their music, a duty to come even when mildly sick, albeit sitting in a corner, a duty to keep coming even on weeks when they aren't enthusiastic or even happy about the music choices. I was raised to feel that a commitment to a chorus or other artistic endeavor was important, that I had a duty to arrive on time, be prepared, sing all the music, attend all rehearsals insofar as possible, and generally manifest my commitment to the performance or project. But my sense of duty to chorus came when I was a kid and had fewer commitments, and as an adult, my singing has almost always been as a paid job, not as a volunteer. Maybe I don't have an accurate perspective. Now that I'm on the other side of the music stand, here at West, I can't always tell whether my choristers experience a similar sense of duty or not. I've had many moments when the choices they made confused me. <laughs> How could anyone miss Winterfest? Or pay attention to Love Day? Or really any Wednesday rehearsal or Sunday performance ever? <laughs> Where's their sense of duty? Elsewhere? Oh, yikes. We are all such busy people, so of course other priorities end up taking precedence from time to time. But should my choristers feel a duty to chorus, 
Is that an appropriate expectation on my part? Returning to Kant and deontology, the first rule of the categorical imperative is that one must be willing to have one's behavior become a universal rule. In practice, that means that a chorister who feels that scheduling across chorus commitments is okay must feel that it is okay if any chorister does the same. Put that way, I probably don't have much hope, since that sounds reasonable even to me. But it does begin to break down the moment we consider what happens if every chorister scheduled across chorus on the same day. Looking at the second aspect of the categorical imperative, we remember that moral rules must respect human beings. Paraphrasing Kant, act so that you treat humanity, both in your own person and that of another, always as an end and never merely as a means. Some of you may recall that Amanda previewed this point a few weeks ago in talking about Kant's influence on Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, and his subsequent articulation of the idea of all people being ends, not means, of each person's inherent worth and value. Shifting back to chorus, I think there's more traction there, emphasizing that choosing to sing based on whether one feels chorus is one's personal top priority or not diminishes the values of the other choristers and me as the director, potentially making us means rather than an end as a group and individuals. If we feel a commitment to each other, then the duty to attend chorus as much as possible feels more relational rather than purely obligational. This seems more promising. Plus, I could work on their inner sense of obligation to the founder and founding principles of ethical culture, Kant and Felix Adler, for the win. (laughs) But... Thinking about trotting out these wonderful ethical principles I'd been digesting, I became unsure whether this would help our experience together, and also whether I am sufficiently sure of my morals to present them as worthy of emulation. Because at the time I started thinking about all these things, I thought that if duty ethics made such sense to me in my work, then I needed to be consistent to apply duty throughout my life. Funny thing, though, I'm not consistent. If I hold up duty as a value, but reveal that I don't apply my sense of duty to all aspects of my life, do I lose my standing, my moral high ground from which to suggest behavior? Because I would like my choristers to place chorus in their commitment to it ahead of practically everything else in their lives. But the place in my life where deontology stops working is in relation to a sense of commitment to myself and my own self-care. While it is true that my commitment to myself is technically outside the bounds of my work, I felt like showing consistency in my choices was important. How would I want to care for myself better? And moreover, do I have a duty to care for myself? And how does answering that question feel? I also felt like showing the struggle I've had to be consistent in that way might help some folks understand the process of engaging with deontology, at least my process. So here we are. Should I feel a duty to care for myself? I resist the notion that to be a good person, I must take care of myself. Particularly when I look at how society defines good self-care. In society today, where being fat and not exercising are symbols of slovenliness, lack of self-care, and self-loathing, 
And that's putting it kindly. I reject caring for my body based on a sense of obligation. I don't owe it to society to care for myself by its definitions. How then can I translate this duty in this situation into something positive? And why do I view a deontological response positively in the context of my work, but not in the context of self-care? Taking a step back, I would like to answer the question of how I would like to care for myself better. I would like to have more energy, specifically more physical stamina. One of the things I love to do most is dance, but I don't do it very much anymore. Moving my body more almost always feels good, but creating a consistent schedule for doing it has been much more elusive. Is this where duty helps or hinders? I resist exercising because I'm supposed to, but I hear an inner voice that suggests that I should. More importantly, that I want to. Do I have a duty to listen to that inner voice? Yes. I believe I should listen to myself. At the same time, I question the source of that inner voice. I don't trust that it comes entirely from an authentic place and wonder if it is merely an internalization of the voices of others, sources I am loath to honor. Another aspect of this subject is motivation. I have known since I was a teenager that guilt didn't motivate me anymore. It had been a prime motivator until I was 13. I considered it to be a piece of developmental progress, my understanding that guilt was no longer a useful tool. I didn't develop much of a replacement, though. This has left me wondering what motivates me at all. If duty doesn't feel sufficient and guilt is no longer of use, what can I use? I wanted to be consistent to show that duty ethics work everywhere in my life. But whether because I refuse to allow them to work or just because they don't work everywhere, duty ethics fail me in connection to self-care. One option is to recast duty to myself more positively. I can honor the voice inside that says I have a duty, a responsibility, a commitment to myself, to my whole self, regardless of what anyone else thinks or feels, regardless of the views of society, and without being tethered to my history. This is hard. It's both emotionally challenging and logistically irritating. I try to be accountable to myself, and I also feel a sense of duty, there it is again, to my children to care for myself better in order to model a self-love that was lacking in my family of origin. Mostly, I hope that a desire for inner harmony will push me to act. This brings me back to how I can lead effectively to help my choristers develop a shared sense of ethics around their work together and with me. We began thinking about a group agreement or covenant in 2013, but I didn't feel great about either the process or my ability to lead it. In late August of 2014, after my time at UUMN, at our fall annual retreat, we spent time talking about what chorus means to us, 
why we sing, what values we draw from the experience. This time, instead of a simple list of rules, almost like the ones we'd expect in a children's classroom, we heard complex thoughts. Instead of only a few ideas about why we sing, we heard things like commitment to a group, giving back, being transformed, spiritual fulfillment, personal renewal, forgiveness, collaboration. We came up with values like show respect for commitments, bring your best effort, value each person, show respect for one another, have fun, assume we are all doing our best. This feels to me like a covenant not a parroting of rules or expectations or a mere undigested sense of duty. I had to let go of being consistent in order to bring these thoughts and ideas to the chorus. I thought I needed to lead more effectively. The surprise was that just by having opened myself up to these ideas, I had changed my approach to working with them and the chorus. When I opened the door and invited Chorus to think about how they felt about it, I got more. Truthfully, West Choristers are committed, thoughtful people, just like everyone at West. We are all engaged in complex thinking and deep feeling around how to be with and for each other. West Choristers are involved in Chorus, but also with schmooze, welcoming table, dishwashing, earth ethics, AV on Sundays, teaching Sunday school, deepening circles and discussion groups, the board, and so much more. My mistake was in thinking that I needed to teach them something about commitment, something about duty. All along, they have been teaching me. Thank you very much.